Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Talking Point segment of the podcast. Eric, my friends, good to see you. Good to see you. How you been? I'm living the dream as always. Excellent. <laughs> So we, today, I took a little liberty with our guest today for the Talking Point segment because, as you know, I'm a fan of podcasts, especially those out there in the industry. And one of the areas that I think never gets any love is the world of quality and quality control and all that kind of stuff, right? Okay. And, it, and it's something that the podcast that I listen to is called Hashtag Quality Matters, and it's hosted by Darcy and Kyle Chambers, who happen to own a company called Texas Quality Assurance. And what I loved about the podcast is they take a subject that is that can typically be not all that entertaining, but they have this really beautiful dynamic of being able to explain to people how, why quality is important and do so in such a way that's balanced between being technically sound, but also personable, which you'll find out here in a bit because they're a husband and wife duo and their, and their ability to kind of banter back and forth and just really explain these kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, not so exciting subjects, but make it exciting as a listener, as a little bit of a geek, as you know, it gives me a chance to nerd out and listen and, and enjoy it at the same time. Can I just say, I think this is one of your best intros ever. <laughs> I mean, you have dogged yourself as a nerd and then possibly questioned our guests before they came on the show as, <laughs> as to why they Although I do have a question, yeah, which is, it's quality. And yeah. this is a podcast about ESG. And so I'm fascinated to see where we go with this. And I think our listeners will be interested in some of the important little nuggets we're going to pull out. So yeah. I'm looking forward to this very much. So, so hold on that thought. And I'll tell you why I felt it was so important to have them come on. But before I do, I want to tell you a little bit about them. So Darcy is actually by trade a teacher. She's got a master's in education and is known as the boss lady there at the company. And also when you hear her on the podcast, she definitely sets the tone. And then Kyle is the brain, or I guess you say the brawn more, the, the brawn brain combo behind the podcast as well. And what was interesting, we were just talking to him and he started out as a Microsoft partner in IT. And then one day somebody came in and said, hey, we need somebody to implement this health and safety manual. We need somebody who's technical. And when the crickets kept going, somebody finally pointed out and said, hey, Kyle, by the way, that's you. And all these years later, he's now turned into a company and a very successful one. So with all that, Kyle, Darcy, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us. Thanks for having us on. No, thank you. This will be fun. So to your question, Eric, so where I thought it was really interesting, one of the things they were talking about in one of their episodes was around culture. It was around implementing a certain idea or implementing something into the business process of how we do something on a day-to-day. -day. And I think so many times from a systemic aspect, from a process aspect and how we conduct ourselves both professionally and personally, we don't, sometimes we just forget that there's this binding kind of almost driver, this expectation around what we do that makes us do some of the things that we do. We, we tend to think that we're, this is my decision, but we're influenced by certain things. And so one of the things they were talking about was in the process of their experience around bringing quality into a business, that if you don't get buy-in and if you don't get the culture to say, we believe in what's going on, it will fall short. And so one of the things I wanted to ask in, in lieu of that was to kind of parallel that with, as a listener, take into account the ESG narrative. We're seeing this, it's, it's becoming this new thing. It's this thing almost being kind of forced, almost kind of the expectation now. It's this 
thing coming across everybody's desk, across whether it's on the investment side, operational side, every side. It's like we have to account for that. And my and my thought was, and my the light bulb for me, and the hope that I get there for the listeners, is if we don't understand that culture and that implementing this and believing in it is not part of that process, ultimately these things will fail. So to start that, Kyle Darcy, tell us a little bit about your experience around what it's been like for a business to bring in some new idea, some kind of foreign idea, even something that we don't like, right? Here comes the quality guys and yeah. start telling me what to do. You're starting <laughs> measuring why, why, my, why my work is terrible. You're yep. here to shut me down or tell me, you know, to change my ways that have been successful or it's close enough and why are you giving me such a hard time? <laughs> so when it comes to implementing an idea, a new idea, especially one that maybe not is as popular and there's resistance, kind of help us, take us down that road of what that's like and how we can be successful around that. Well, I'll tell you, I got thrown into, you know, to the fire with this originally. And so I was just the uh, the computer geek at the front office, right? And that's really all I was. And here I am out in this, uh, you know, machine weld shop. And, you know, guys have been doing this stuff for 30, 40 years. And I'm telling them how to work safely with about two weeks of reading and a notion 30 under my belt. <laughs> and so, so I learned a lot of lessons the hard way, very, very, very quickly. And, you know, I'd love to give you some extraordinarily technical answer but the truth of the matter was going down there at break time and eating with these guys was better than any training program I could have put in place, any official program I could have put in place. Just going down there and eating lunch with these guys what was huge. And so very quickly, as I got involved in this arena, because it started out with health and safety, then quickly expanded to environmental quality and all sorts of weird you know, intricacies in between, I figured out this really is its a people's game. It is a cultural game. And if you can get that mindset shifted, everything else is pretty easy to fall into order because you can write a work instruction, you can write a procedure. That's not the hard part. Getting people to truly believe it and as their own idea, you know, I know this is cliche, but it's truly the secret sauce and it can be tough. So we think about ESG and what's kind of going on in the oil and gas business. And there are so many external forces at play right now, whether that be capital access and, and capital providers backing out because they don't want to be associated with the business. You think about, from the public company standpoint, you think about you know the NYC and NASDAQ you know, starting to mandate certain things, investment banks starting to mandate certain things. Hey, if you're going to go public, you're going to have at least you know, a FEMA on the board, these kind of things. So you have all these external forces acting on the oil and gas industry. But I think, and I think I'm going to hear you say, is like, all right, all of these powers are coming to play on us. But if we don't shift the culture internally within the companies, then those things are just going to bang heads all the time. And we're not actually going to accomplish anything we need or want to accomplish. And so I guess talk a little bit about that. And I think, I think you hit it on a little bit, but let's talk about some, if you think about external forces, whether it be somebody from OSHA that's coming in to do inspections or whether even an external force that's really, maybe it's even senior management that to the guys in the shop, that's an external force to them and maybe in some ways, right? (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about, or get y'all's thoughts a little bit about on, okay, yeah, that's great that all these requirements and forces are playing on us, but we have to change internally how we think about things and we have to demonstrate that from the top as well. Well, Darcy loves to talk a lot about how important top-down management is in the podcast, and it really is huge. Again, these things sound so incredibly cliche, and to actually get on the ground and try to do it, barking something from a conference room is one thing. Going out there and actually working with the folks is a whole other. People love to learn by example, you know, so you have to be that example to lead from. So, you know, an example is when we first started to implement some of the health and safety stuff, right? You know, these guys didn't believe in wearing safety glasses. They didn't believe in wearing face shields, right? 
Well, it just so happened that a week after we had implemented the rules about actually wearing safety glasses and actually wearing face shields when you're grinding, a guy had a, a grinding disc explode and he got stuck in his face shield. So needless to say, from then on out, I got a little more respect about some of these rules. So that was just kind of a good happenstance that things happened. But it was. It allowed me to, to really try to, to do this and, and lead by example. You know, Darcy's seen the exact same thing in the school system is people are people wherever you go. And we talked about the quality. Quality is quality wherever you go. Some of the focuses change, right? So maybe one organization has much higher focus in one area than the other, but the processes are still the same. And we did an episode recently talking about the principles of quality management. So it's funny, if you read the ISO 9001 standard and you don't catch on to the fact that over half of the standards talking about culture, you think it's all about documentation. You think it's all about strict requirements. No, it's all about culture. And if you don't get those cultural pieces in place, you're tough out of luck. And the first one you're talking about, you know, if you've got these outside pressures. So we're talking about interested parties. We're talking about customers. So you really do need to understand what these folks are looking for. A great example, there was a, a company we did some work with, and they built this huge abrasive blasting facility. And so they were able to put like four different blasters in there, saving them so much time, such better quality. Like everything was just phenomenal about it, except for the fact they would leave the bay doors open to keep it cooled off in there. And right behind the tree line was a neighborhood. <laughs> So they hadn't considered that there's a neighborhood right behind them, and they're blasting at about 120 plus, you know, decibels. So by the time it got to the neighborhood, they were still at 90 decibels. And so the folks, the kids playing in their backyard should have been wearing hearing protection. Hmm. So it's little things like that. that sometimes you, you don't think about and you don't consider. And, and so that's where you take a look at the principles of quality management. They start with customer focus, you know, leadership, engagement of people. You know, this is the foundation of a quality management system. And the same principles that govern ESG govern quality management. It's the same idea. If you take a look at ISO, ISO has a few standards out there, to, to say the least. They do have <laughs> one for social responsibility, which is, is getting the, the same ballpark here, but there's no certification to it yet. It's just a, it's a series of guidelines. But yeah, it really truly is its top-down approach. Who's our customer? Who's our interested party? What is it they care about? And then how does that impact our organization? So from a top-down standpoint, Darcy, you mentioned you had a little bit of experience, so that's kind of your hot button. And, and, <laughs> I mean, and really what you're talking about is it's kind of leadership, which you just alluded to, Kyle. So tell us about in your experience, whether it's education system or what you've seen as somebody coming in new to a different co to a company, different mindset. Tell us about what it, why it's so important from the top to have buy-in. Well, I think in any industry or business that you're in, you want to see that your manager or your leadership cares about you. I think we're selfish by nature. People are. We want to know that we matter. And y'all mentioned I was in education and just simple things like voting on the academic calendar every year. We didn't feel like that mattered. We felt like they were going to do whatever they wanted anyway. So why waste our time? There was a lot of things we just didn't feel like mattered because it was shown to us daily that things didn't matter. <laughs> so I just went in and did my job that I needed to do. But going back to being selfish, one episode we did recently about a pharmacy that implemented quality, they did, they had each employee, among many other things, fill out a fishbone diagram to see what their job was and how it affected the other jobs within the pharmacy and how that slowed down their times, I think yep. is what they were trying to make better. And what was fun about it, it was they had to fill it out from their perspective mm -hmm. of their job. So I think when you're talking about culture, it's important to help 
people see where they fit into the company. So many people just go to get their wage and get their mm-hmm. paycheck, and I did my job, and that's all that matters to me. So you have to see where they fit into that company, and then for ESG, where that company fits into our you know, society. Yep. We've done a lot of episodes talking about, I think, total now like seven or eight, going back to Simon Sinek, start with why. And it really is like you have to get that why out there. And again, it's more than putting it up on the lunchroom wall for everyone to read every day. That's actually the best way to guarantee no one will pay attention to something. (laughs) Is if you put it up there where they see it every day, it's just background noise. For sure. Well, I think one of the issues in the energy industry has been over the last, you know, probably a couple decades, there has been lip service paid to a lot of the ESG issues, but no, in many ways, no tangible, actionable items that have been taking place, whether that be climate change, whether it be diversity inclusion, whether it be these other, you know, all the various topics under the ESG umbrella. And we've seen, I think what we've seen is that the response to that is what you guys are describing, which is, okay, well, it just got, it was just taped up on the wall in the lunchroom, but we're not actually going to do anything about it. So we're checking a box, but we're not actually going to make a change. And, and I think what's unfortunate about that is we're now in a position where capital providers and banks and others are saying, you know what, we're not going to help you out anymore unless you figure this out. And so we've had, we've kind of built into our system, we don't really care. Now, I think the next generations, the younger generations, it's something that's more hardwired into them to think mm-hmm. about the ESG issues. But we've kind of taken the starting gun went off and we kind of hung out at the start line for a while. (laughs) I feel like, I think we're, we're up and sprinting now, but we've got to catch up and a cultural adjustment and an attitude adjustment that comes from the boardroom and from the CEO that says, no, this is important. These are things that we're going to be focused on. We think these things drive bottom line performance. We think, you know, to go back, you talked about customers a lot. And I think this is one of the things that's really important that you and I have talked about a lot, Sean, is, you know, this kind of taking a comprehensive view of all your stakeholders. What do our customers care about? You know, what do our local communities care about? What do our, our own vendors care about? And really importantly, what did, what did the fellow employees in this building think about? And making sure that that has become, you know, a critical focus of how the business is run and operated. Yeah, I think in that, in that same vein, just to kind of extrapolate out a little bit on the quality side. So as you do those things, so we can, so we say, if we can get that buy-in from a cultural standpoint. So here we go, hoorah. We all agree that we need to do something about the environment, whatever that means, you know, operationally or whatnot, invite and go down your list. The second level of that that I, I'm curious and I think it applies to what you all do. So now we're on this road and you see it now. So here comes the investment dollars. Here comes this change. And you look at things qualitatively, which means you're checking it right? at the end of the day, right? It's, it's, it's a check. Is it what it's supposed to be or what is it and what does it mean whenever you measure it? So I look at ESG, and there's a little crossover with your experience, I know, with on the environmental side. And environmental seems to be the easy one because you can measure emissions, right? So you can kind of show a delta in there in terms of what changed. But the other one, social, governance, those start to get a little complicated. In terms of quality, in terms of giving a qualitative measurement around any of those factors, what kind of comes to your, your minds around what may be difficult or what may be challenges in those areas? My favorite topic to talk about, the process approach. We have to have to have a process approach to everything. The truth is you have no idea how important a process approach is to your life. Actually, last year for one of the ASQ chapters, I did a presentation of what I called coffee pot process mapping. So doing something as simple as making a pot of coffee, all of these requirements match from the simplest to the most complex. And what's key in a process approach is you have to identify what are our inputs, what are our expected outputs. Great. So that, that's what we intend to start with. That's where we intend to end. Kind of like turning the levers on something, right? You, you give the, the gas to the car and then it's going to go faster. Well, great. 
Now we've got to identify before the process starts, what is our goal? Great. So then when we get to the end of the process, how are we going to measure it? Because if you don't identify those up front, you're going to have all sorts of terrible unintended consequences. You're going to have a process that goes nowhere. You're going to have a bucket that you're just wasting money and money and money on because it's got a hold on the bottom and you're never going to fill it. And I think that's a huge problem when it comes to quality and these kinds of things. They just say, we're going to implement this program, but they don't really know what they want to measure or what they want to get out of it. And And, then the program fails. Yeah. And it's okay to hit a yard mark and say, all right, well, let's now measure ourselves the way we intended to measure ourselves three months ago. And you may make the decision, wow, those were really bad metrics that we picked. They didn't help us get to our our intended result. So great. You're going to make a change. You're going to document that change. And then you're going to go forward again and you're going to stop and you're going to measure because you've already decided ahead of time how you're going to measure yourself. But especially when we're talking about, you know, social issues and governance issues, things that aren't quite so tangible. It's like we were talking about with this missions measurements. You can still set an intended result here. And when you measure, you need to measure not only did we achieve the goal, but what costs were incurred to achieve that goal. Because it may be that your goal is not a good goal. It may be that the middle part of the process, what we call process controls, the method you took to get there was no good. So, you know, I could belabor that for a while and, uh, you know, talk a lot, but you really need to look up the process approach. And we've got inputs, outputs, and process controls. And if you don't understand those at the beginning of any type of a change, like Darcy said, you're going to fail. What I love about that is you think about over the last year, especially from the super majors, and now it's, it's, you see it in OFS well from some of the large OFS companies, you see all the net zero goals Mm -hmm. that are coming out. Hey, in the next 30 years, we're going to be this. And I'm not necessarily opposed to any of that, no, but, you know, sitting here listening to you talk about it, I was like, okay, what's the process yeah. for getting there? Yeah. You think about the Paris Accord and the countries that are participating in that, and it's my understanding at this point that the vast majority of the countries haven't gotten anywhere near any of their goals, right? And so, I mean, you, you think about from, we've set these goals, I think people have an emotional reaction to them that makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. Yes. Feel better about it. Like we've set a goal. All right. Awesome. Are we actually going to accomplish anything with respect to it? And I love this idea of, hey, you don't have something that, you know, you don't have objective metrics that you're going to test on a frequent basis to determine if we're actually on the path towards our goal or if in hindsight, our goal was really dumb. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. Or like Hal was saying, maybe you didn't get the result, but it wasn't because result or the, the idea of that result wasn't the negative or wasn't the problem. It was what you took to get there. So then maybe you need to modify yeah. that to get that expectation that you want versus, well, we tried, didn't work. So I guess we got to quit and we just got to throw in the towel versus let's change that, that middle part. I, I have personally been involved in a lot of projects that had a really bad process. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so it's something we can all relate to. So there, so there's where the tie-in was for the whole ESG. So yep. what do you think? Awesome. Well, time went quick, real quick. Thank you both so much for coming. And I encourage everybody out there to listen to the podcast. You want to plug it real quick? You feel free. Yeah. So you can just search anywhere you get podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Hashtag quality matters. You can mm-hmm. go to qmcast.com, find us on LinkedIn. We're wherever where you can find us. Yeah. And they awesome. Do, they do a great job of making it simple and fun and enjoyable. So keep up the good work. Thank you all. And then next is our case study. Looking forward to it. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. 
Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hbe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. Today, Eric, you know, we've been able to do a handful of these so far, and this is one of those that we've taken to, I think, to a different level. We've got to know Neil, we've got to know the company a little bit more, spent some real time with him, so it's made it a little bit more intimate, but this was brought to us by your partner, literally, Mr. Blankenship. Yeah, so Mike has done a lot of work with Neil at Silver Wolf, and it's been a great relationship for the firm, and I think for Neil, and I think what we're people are really going to enjoy today is I think people have some very preconceived notions about what ESG is and what we can accomplish. And this is something, in my opinion, that is super cool, but out of left field. And yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. And also, I think you're going to, I hope think another stereotype we can kind of knock down a little bit is that C-suite type of, of kind of above and beyond in terms of being able to connect with. We're very fortunate to have the actual CEO of Silver Wolf Film here today, Mr. Ruter. And so we're going to we're gonna get to him in just a second. So the case study segment is going to be about what is called the Michigan Express Pipeline Conversion Project. And so we're also joined by somebody else at the end after this. As, as you all know, they're listening. We have an insight segment following up and we have a real live environmentalist coming on, which as it was actually at the request or actually at the suggestion of Neil, which I thought was fascinating. So Eric, we get to hear from a real life environmentalist today. <laughs> Very excited about that. And, and I think people will enjoy Jason's perspective and what he brings and, and this idea of, you know, free markets solving our public policy problems. And these two together are going to be really great. So I'm, I'm excited to dive in. Yeah. And I'm also, you know, I say that with some jest, but, you know, sometimes we look at those that we look at this polarization we're having and what we continue to have, especially in the industry. And that word is typically comes up as somebody who's anti everything that we're, that we're about. And so it's going to be great to get his perspective on what he sees as far as something like this project, not just from a business standpoint or from an industry standpoint, but hey, what is this actually doing with the environment? We're interested and excited to have him on. So as we get going, so let's time to dive in. We're going to talk to Neil Ruter. Neil is the C founder and CEO of Silver Wolf Midstream, an energy and renewables infrastructure company that focuses on solving fundamental energy aggregation, delivery, and renewable resource challenges throughout the U.S. He's got over 30 years of experience. He has led and built several successful energy-focused companies. He previously held executive roles at E2 Energy Services and DTE Midstream, which is a subsidiary of DTE Energy. And E2 Energy Services own, operate, and acquire Midstream Energy Assets, and DTE Midstream manages about 2,200 miles of pipeline across the Midwest, Northeast, and Louisiana. So without further ado, Neil, my friend, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thank you very much, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about this wonderful project and how it came about and why it's a little bit different than your typical projects. Yes, sir. So let's dive right in. So give us a little bit of an idea of when starting into this project, what was the opportunity? What was the opening, if you will, in the market relative to your experience that you saw and that your company saw that allowed you to dive into this project? Well, this project specifically came up because of some of the issues that are going on in the state of Michigan with respect to a supply issue for propane in the state of Michigan. I've been familiar with this pipeline for a while. I've certainly known the owners of it, the current owners and the prior owners, and the facilities that it's connected to. And I knew that there was going to be an opportunity at some point in the future, even while I was at DTE, that this pipeline may come up and there's, there's going to be a need to look at how to repurpose it something to do with this pipeline and use it in a way that's it's not currently used. 
And the original narratives have always been around how can we just you know make money on this pipeline? And I think any pipeline, if it's if it's really got its purpose defined properly, will make money. And so I didn't look at it from that perspective. I looked at it like, what is the product mix that when typical pipeline people see a pipeline, they're going to think to put into it whatever they always put into pipelines, whether it's gas, oil, or some other product. But this pipeline was very unique because I knew where it was connected in the southern part of the state to the storage facilities that store propane. And I also knew that there was a narrative around the insecurity or the anxiety around propane supply interruption. And that that narrative was revolving around another pipeline that runs through the state that basically there's a question around whether or not the state's going to have a nice, secure supply of propane. Regardless of what happens, there was just this anxiety on that. I thought, wow, this is a pipeline that doesn't touch any of those buttons, but yet it can be a solution to that problem. It literally hit me right in the head and said, this is a solution to the problem of propane distribution. And it really hit it on a couple of different fronts. There isn't an alternative for propane distribution in the state other than truck. A little bit of rail service, but it's mostly truck. And there isn't a pipeline that does this. This one goes right through the spine of the entire state of Michigan and with very little impact, almost zero impact, to convert this pipeline over into something new and yet actually provide a productive, solution-oriented opportunity for the state and the residents of the state. And so that's how this hit my radar screen. And then it's taken about two years to develop the process with the current owners of the pipeline to get it to a point where we have a transaction that we're going to build a business around. And that fit right into the mantra of what I want to build with Silverwolf. And we can talk about that too later. Yeah. So a huge opportunity and a big step into that. So as always, as you preface, you knew a few things about it. You were aware of it. So as you got into this process, can you give us an idea, an example of one issue that you faced so far that you expected to face relative to this, and then one issue that you didn't expect to face relative to the process? Yeah, I'd say the issues that I expected were the traditional competition issues. You know, there's going to be people that are going to want this asset and use it for something else or use it for whatever they can use it for to make an economic profit on it. And and that's certainly fine. And that's, that I welcome that competition. But there were people that did come out of the woodwork that had an interest in this pipeline that did surprise me. And I wasn't sure if their interest was to really provide a service behind this pipeline's footprint or if it was to take out competition for an existing service that already is in place. And so those are the kinds of things that frankly did surprise me. And basically strong negotiations with the current seller is what overcame those in our our intended purpose for what we were going to do with this pipeline. I really built this message around problem solving as opposed to opportunity seeking. And that actually is the fundamental difference. We weren't seeking an opportunity. We were identifying a problem that the state is very concerned about. And that frankly really was the driving factor in this. And so the answer was really clear when we realized we had a pipeline that runs through the entire state and we can put a product in there that no one else is thinking about. Nobody was thinking about propane. They were thinking about oil. They were thinking about gas, other products, gasoline, diesel fuel, anything. But they weren't thinking about propane. And propane was the thing that's blinking red light in the top of the state going, wow, we're really concerned here. And this really bring to the table the answer to that problem. So like we said, this, this is the Michigan Express Pipeline Conversion Project. And you're addressing those issues. You've gone through all those different things. You saw this opportunity. So can you narrow us down a little bit and give us a little bit more detail exactly what this project entails? Sure. 
This project is a 225 mile pipeline. It originates in Kalkaska, Michigan at a fractionation facility for natural gas processing in the northern half of the state. It processes along with one other plant in the area that Shell and Amoco built in the 1970s for processing the natural gas production in the northern Antrim state of Michigan, northern part of Michigan. And it processes a significant amount of natural gas, but that natural gas has been declining on its reserves over the last decades and you know the production is not the same and the the state is getting its production being provided for by out-of-state interstate natural gas supplies from the Marcellus and Utica and other locations and so state of Michigan production is is not what it used to be and so with that declining this opportunity came up with this 225 mile pipeline it flows currently from the north to the south, and it, it, it connects down in Marysville, Michigan, down at the border of Sarnia, Ontario, and Marysville, Michigan. And there it connects to multiple pipelines, all of which connect to other facilities in the Detroit area and over the river into Sarnia, Ontario. So this pipeline was something that really was possibly usable for something else. And there were suitors on this pipeline that wanted it for other products. But it hit my radar screen only and singularly because of the propane issue. And I knew that there was going to be an opportunity to ship propane. It was the most equitable product to put into this pipeline that did two things. One, we could make a return on the investment with the value propositions that we were structuring our rates around. And two, we could be a real service, a real value, something meaningful for the state and the residents of the state that answered security issues and supply stability issues. And then frankly, this pipeline, there are eight valve check stations throughout the 225 miles. We're going to go in, turn those around. Currently, it flows from north to south. We're going to make it bi-directional. It'll flow both ways, but right now we're only planning on flowing from the south where the storage and production facilities are in Marysville to the north. And then we're going to build two more terminals in the center of the state, one for simplicity purposes. We call it like the middle of the state. And those of us from Michigan, we like to use our hands to point to things on in the state of Michigan. And so what I would say is at your knuckles and bo- above, we're planning on, from the knuckles up, we are planning on being a strong distribution source with a facility right there just north of Mount Pleasant in an area called Farwell. And there's an intersection of two main highways we own the property there, and we believe, and the pipeline runs right through there. We believe that's going to be a, a dominant opportunity for a propane distribution facility in the center of the state. And then, of course, we'll put another terminal a little bit farther south, and then the final one up at Kalkaska at the facilities that are already there. And so we've created a value proposition for the owner, made an offer to them that they felt was acceptable. And then we have a CapEx, a capital expenditure budget for reconstructing and rebuilding any portions of the pipeline that need to be done and building out these terminals. And it's it's significant. It's millions and millions of dollars. But it's less than the proposition of saying, I want to deliver this as a new product. I want to go out and build a brand new pipeline. This one really, and we can talk about that when we get into ESG, the fact that this was an existing structure and asset really was the primary driver for me, more than trying to rebuild something new under a greenfield model. The greenfield model just wouldn't have worked financially. We couldn't have attracted customers to it for the value proposition that we'd need to make it work. So that that's the short and quick into it, but I don't know if that answered your yeah, question. Yeah, no, that's good. And then the last one, so where in the project are you exactly? 
And what has it been like so far? It's it's been interesting. It's been a strange trip. And this trip has really been a function of the COVID era that we're in is very, very frustrating. And I'm I'm not the only one that's experiencing this frustration. It's something that really has hit the business world. And I don't care if you own a bar, a restaurant, or a lawnmower repair shop or a guy who cuts grass. This COVID has changed the way all business has really been done over the last six months. And that has been the singular biggest challenge. And the delivery of what that problem is, is nobody meets. Nobody wants to get together and talk about how to get things done. Or if anything, there's a major delay in the connection process between suppliers, bids, customers, selling, buying, doing anything. There's just this artificial delay that is prolonging this process to a point where there's a lot of frustration. And and frankly, a lot of things just aren't getting done. I'm hopeful that, you know, those things are going to be changing slowly, but I hope that they're going to move away and we'll be able to move quicker. But that, that has been a significant hurdle and challenge during this process, more so than anything else. And we're currently in the middle of our final phase of due diligence on the pipeline. We've conducted environmental studies, phase one and phase two. They have passed all of those to our satisfaction and actually beyond. This pipeline also has, we've just completed a pigging, which is a pipeline inspection gauge tool that runs through the entire 225 miles of the pipe. And we've inspected it with x-ray technology and a full inline inspection tool reading. And we'll have those results from that report by the middle of December. So after that delivery of those results, and we're expecting them to be fine because the integrity of this pipeline is very strong right now. And we don't expect that to be anything different than what we see. And we plan on closing the transaction in calendar 20. So by the end of the year, we plan to close this. And then Uh, January 1st, we deploy new capital on the development of the three locations where we're going to build terminals. So I think it's a kind of a slammed, you know, typically we try to clarify exactly what part of ESG this applies to. But I mean, it goes without saying that I mean, obviously the environmental aspect that you, you alluded to, definitely the social aspect, I think, you know, we, I don't think it's too flippant or too much of a draw to say with those, you know, less trucks on the road, more, you know, more efficient, you know, transfer of that, those materials, especially in Michigan in the winter, or just, you know, from a volumetric standpoint, so, so many aspects of that as well. Is there anything that stood out to you as far as ES, ES and or G relative to the project that you kind of hang your hat on that you're most proud of? Yeah, there's a couple of things. And actually th- these were real big drivers for us. And it's, they're, they're big drivers for us in the spirit of what I'm trying to build with my team here at Silverwolf. This isn't just one project that happens to fall into this narrative. They're, this is our objective and what we are pursuing. And this was existing infrastructure that would have been idled and not used and would have been a problem. It wasn't going to get used. It, well, currently wasn't being used in its current state. It was held in an idle condition under pressure, but it wasn't being used because the market for the product that was in it, which was ethane, was no longer being purchased at the southern end of the pipeline. So it sat there. And to me, that was like a waste of a wonderful resource that's already had everything that needed to be done for this to get approved and over the goal line as a service providing asset. It was already in place. So... That hit the radar as an opportunity. We want to look for assets that are underutilized or going to be mothballed or are basically not being fully utilized in their current iteration and repurpose them for something that's a solution to a problem that's in the market. And that's actually how we identify where we go in the markets, any market. We've got a project in Arkansas, another one in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and there's an additional one in Michigan that we'd like to look at as well. But all of these hit our radar screen because of a problem that exists and people are scratching their heads on the solution. 
And the solution has always been build something new and charge a lot of money for it. And my attitude is what is already in existence that can be repurposed or reassigned to solve that problem or to at least contribute to the solution of that problem so that the burden on what's having to take place, i.e. construction or anything like that, is less. And then also, frankly, just to be economic about it, the capital commitments will be less. And with less capital commitments, we actually have a better chance at success, i.e. making a return for our investors. So new, when we think about the repurposing, I think it's obvious to people, you've got a pipe that is idled and sitting there under pressure, but eventually it's going to deteriorate and you've just got a, a rusting out pipe effectively that's just sitting on the ground. So eyesore, land use issues, a pipe that you've got to deal with. But I think you also mentioned that there's probably still ethane product that was in the pipe. So you've got potentials for leaks and all kinds of things like that. And so I love this idea that we're going to go in, grab something that eventually is going to become a problem and turn it around and turn it into a solution. I love what you said earlier. There's this blinking red light for people and I love that I learned today from the knuckles up. I can't wait till I talk to somebody else from Michigan. I'm asking if they're from the knuckles up. But there's this, you know, this huge need for reliable propane distribution up there and to do that. One thing I want to get your thoughts on, and I think we'll talk to Jason about this as well. I want to talk a little bit about the truck part. Yeah, I didn't talk about that. So go ahead. I do want to. As I well. mean, I think the truck thing is huge. It and, is. And coming from Texas and hearing about everything that goes on in the Permian and everywhere else where we just have trucks all over the place, I think, you know, safety is such a huge concern. There's another angle to it that I, I would love to get your thoughts on as well. And I think Jason will probably speak to it as well is just rebuilding and working on highways. As you know, Sean, I've spent some time recently driving back and forth between Durango, Colorado. And I don't know if anybody's ever been on I-40 in Amarillo, but I'm pretty sure it's just an off-road track. Uh, I'm not sure that's actually a highway anymore. But so, Neil, just your thoughts on trucks and safety and not spending state dollars rebuilding roads. And we can actually repurpose those dollars yeah. for other things as well. So your thoughts there? No question about it. And that literally was an equal component to the narrative on how we pursued this business model. It was really around the narrative of how many miles we're going to be driven by these trucks. And these aren't just your typical trucks. The trucks that we're talking about eliminating or reducing, we're not going to really eliminate them. We're going to relocate from where they pick up. And so we're changing the mode of transportation in the state from a truck-only delivery state from certain areas to a pipeline delivery state with shorter truck distances. We've done the modeling on this, and we believe there's going to be more than a million miles annually of heavy superload truck. That's 80,000 pound gross vehicle weight vehicles. These are the multi-axle tanker trucks that supply long-term tank. And, and apparently they are only available in the state of Michigan. And Jason probably will know a lot more about that than I do. But these are a very significantly large tanker truck. And I, you see them on the highway hauling long haul propane. Nothing wrong with that. It works. But when it doesn't work, it's a big problem. And when there's snow on the ground, and we have a polar vortex like we did a few years ago, and the delivery capabilities of propane are restricted because it's only coming in via truck, can be a problem. It can, it, and the problem will manifest itself in, frankly, a higher price. And that higher price then leaks down to the residents, the people that are buying the product. And if there's a polar vortex and there's shortages of propane, that's going to be a real issue. And, and it's, it has happened once. And so it can. there's no question it can happen again. So this narrative of reducing truck miles was a real big one. We still think that there's going to be a lot of, obviously they have to pick up the propane in a truck from the terminals that we have relocated. So, but the distance issue is now on right. the table. Now they don't have 250 miles to drive with one load, one driver. 
now they may be able to have, and actually this falls into the ESG. You've got a better, more efficient use of their human capital. And actually that's part of the reason why we haven't had that kind of pushback that you would think would be from a competing trucking provider. The pushback hasn't been there. It's not to say that there's anxiety that isn't on the table. It is, but there's also a relief that says, gee, we'll actually be more efficient. We think we can get more sorties in. Can you extrapolate a little bit more? You told us a story earlier, propane relative to the state of Michigan. So I know the assumption is that it's just a, maybe there's not a, maybe people don't understand the application for it and why it's so important to the state of Michigan. I believe you told me that 80% of the houses and residences in the state use propane to get heat. And if they don't, what is their other option if they don't have it? Wood. <laughs> that just blows me away. Start burning wood. Well, we're talking about from the knuckles up. The, and we all know what that means. Yeah, the knuckles up. The, you know, And so that's a big portion of the state's residential propane consumption. The state of Michigan, the latest numbers that are published and available on EIA are about 489 million gallons a year of annual propane consumption. And then that's not all residential. It's broken up between industrial agricultural usage, which is also seasonal. And then there is a good portion, frankly, in the state of Michigan with auto gas. So there is a, you know, about 30 million plus gallons a year annually being used in auto gas propane. But this propane supply issue is really borne out by hitting the residents in the northern half of the state. And frankly, we talk about Michigan a lot with the hand, but there's another part of Michigan that really cannot be forgotten. And it's the northern and the upper peninsula, frankly. And I don't like leaving out the upper peninsula because frankly, it's the most beautiful part of the state. Well, I'm going to get a lot of pushback (laughs) on that, but it is truly heaven on earth in the northern part of Michigan and the upper peninsula. It's unbelievable. But it is also a majority of the residents up there have propane for a heating source. Or frankly, it's their entire fuel source. So that may very well be, you know, what not just their heating source, but they're also their cooking source, things yeah. like that. So if you have an interruption in supply, we'll just have a repeat of, a, I think, what happened uh, a number of years ago when, when there was the polar vortex. And we, we don't want to see that. But the state is very dependent on stable secure supply for propane for the residents. And really, there's not an opportunity for them to pick up an alternative source for heating their home. I mean, there's electricity, but that's going to be too expensive. And it's not going to be natural gas because the cost of servicing or building sales lines to these houses out in these rural parts of the state is a little bit higher than it would make sense to basically go out and build to. So there's not going to be any time in the short term that they're going to be converting to natural gas. They're going to stay on propane. And I think just from a community health and safety standpoint, right? When you talk about reliable delivery of that propane up north, I mean, something that comes to my mind is like hospitals and, yeah. you know, medical care. And there's some, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, keeping the house warm. It's, you know, if, if people are in need of medical care in those types of situations and in a vortex situation, I can totally see how a truck's not going <laughs> to, not going to make it north. So, yeah, there's a number of examples, that, you know, you can pull those out from anywhere, I think, in terms of trucking interruption, but This really is about making it much more stable, safer, and more secure. The stability is the big portion. There's not really going to be the anxiety over, gee, what are we going to do if it's 40 below? Well, 40 below would be a hell of a day. But (laughs) 20 below isn't that unusual. I can remember many mornings getting up in northern Michigan and it's 17 below, 20 below. And actually, I'm one of those guys that actually likes that. So, I think, I think for us down here, there's no real big difference between minus 20 and minus 40. In Houston. Yeah, we're all dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you guys in Texas don't get the minus no. 40. Neil, I want to follow up on something you, you kind of touched on a little bit earlier, and it's other projects in other states. The whole 
flipping the, the pipe around and pushing propane north, it makes a lot of sense. But when I think about some of these other states, what are you guys seeing as far as opportunity, as far as assets, and just vision for how you might repurpose those? I, I'm sure we're not pushing propane around in some of these states. So just your thoughts on opportunities and right. what you might do, but what Silver Wolf might do in, in the future with some other pipes. Well, there's a project without getting into the details of it that has a liquids oil line that won't be being used in the future. And we think that that line had a you know problematic history in the past. And we think we can take that, turn it around, and we have a customer, a significant agricultural consuming customer that will connect to this line and take natural gas on it. So we think we can take that out of the liquids and the oil market that it's in, turn it around, connect it to natural gas. There's going to be a significant amount of CapEx that will be invested in it because we have to repair and replace a fair portion of the line. But now we have a long-term asset, long-term project that's going to flow clean, burning natural gas to an agri-producer that is in need of that. They currently get that supply right now, but the story is basically that they're in the process of either upgrading the existing lines or doing this project. And this project fits that bill under a number of fronts. When we get into the project next year, and you'll see it, it's really going to be another one of the ESG things. We really check some boxes that say, you know what, we're, we're fixing something, we're solving a problem, and we're going with clean product. So that's actually, I really look forward to being able to tell that story when we can open that door. We'll definitely have you back. Part two. And we can learn some more geography too, hopefully. Yep. <laughs> and so from a geography standpoint, who else? So it seems like the state of Michigan, just based on the history of the way things went, became more dependent on propane from that, from that standpoint. Are there any other states that are that way or that are close to it? And what about our friends to the north? Is there what's going on in Canada? Is there anything up there that they have relatively that may be similar in terms of Yeah, well, I mean, Wisconsin is a high consuming propane state, Minnesota as well. All these states where an existing pipeline that is controversial right now does pass through, does pass through Superior Wisconsin in that market and again through our upper peninsula. So propane is an issue in all of those locations. Our project really isn't going to impact them. We will have a slight impact in the Upper Peninsula, I believe, but that's not been any part of our narrative or our our quote-unquote pitch on what we want to do with this project. But the states around us are similar with their propane profile, and the security of supply is going to be an issue. If something changes going forward with the current narrative on propane coming over the Straits of Mackinac, well, it's not propane that's the product. It's the entire product stream that's coming over, and then it gets fractionated and processed down in the southern half of the state, or Sarnia. But if that changes, there's going to be you know, some other issues to really get into. And I'm not anticipating a lot of change. We're not really a part of any of the narrative that's going around line five. That's the line I'm referring to. And we really have an independent story, completely independent of what that process is. But if something does go away with respect to line five, there's going to be more need for other solutions for propane delivery. Yeah, I mean, this just seems like an amazing story, amazing project. Neil, you've been an amazing guest for us. So we, it's really been great to get to know you personally. We are looking forward to part two, having you on again. And this was just... Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Excellent, excellent episode. Thanks nice. for coming on. We really appreciate it. You're yeah. welcome. I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that we have a state that is basically one product away from wood burning because it just it's this it's part of this perspective standpoint we don't think about it right yeah but it's i think it's i think it's amazing that you're being you know something's happening that does all these boxes and then ultimately i don't think it's i don't think it's a small thing to say that you mentioned hospitals but just the you know going through a winter of just being able to be a cook and to be able to have heat i mean that's a that is the fundamental aspect of why we have energy to begin with. All right. We had a place. We sold it, but we had a place in northern Michigan. It's propane. And I can remember a couple of 
winters where we're like, oh, we're getting low on propane and propane price was, you never want to buy propane in January. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, because it's the peak of the market. It's like buying a raincoat when it's raining, you know? So, but yeah, it's definitely a commodity that's in need. Well, we wish you nothing but the best on the project. We thank you for your time and... Yeah, look forward to talking again in 21. Yep, absolutely, guys. Thanks, buddy. And so we're going to take a small break and we'll be right back with our insight segment with Jason Hayes. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hbe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome back to our third segment, the Insight segment. Eric, we just got done talking to New Ruter at Cyril Wolf Midstream about their Michigan Conversion Pipeline project. And just a bit of a buzz around that one. I mean, that was a great example, I think, of just a combination of a solid business investment, a solid opportunity utilizing existing infrastructure that would otherwise could be an issue. And then on top right. of that, you know, it, it had an ESG impact and a, and a pretty nice return. Yeah, it's one of those... I think, like I said during the segment, it's kind of out of left field. I don't think it's something you would naturally think of, but it was a great solution for the people from the knuckle up in Michigan. And it was a great business opportunity. So win-win for everybody, including the state, in my opinion. Yes, it sure seemed like it. And one of the things we try to do on the on the podcast when we do the insight segment around getting a perspective, you know, we're not looking for just always an echo chamber. It's always great to have somebody in the industry come in and kind of maybe expand upon some of the challenges and, and define that. But through Neil's suggestion, we connected with Jason Hayes for this. And Jason, I'm going to tell you a bit about his background, and I'm going to read his bio. Jason is the Director of Environmental Policy for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, located in Midland, Michigan. We were, we were tempted to just use Midland to confuse people, but, but it's in Midland, Michigan, and it was founded in 1987. The Mackinac Center is a nonpartisan research and educational institute that is dedicated to advancing liberty and opportunity for all people through research and education. Environmental Policy Initiative at the Mackinac Center focuses on improving the lives of Michigan's residents by first working to understand Michigan's unique natural features and then promoting policies that balance the state's environmental health and economic vigor. Jason personally has spent almost three decades studying and working in environmental and energy policy. He worked as a backcountry ranger in British Columbia in their provincial parks, as a forester in British Columbia's Borel Forest, and researched National Parks Management and Grizzly Bear Biology with the Fraser Institute in Calgary, Alberta. He has spent over a decade researching and communicating energy and environmental policy with the Canadian and American energy industry. And in July of 2016, Jason moved to the Mackinac Center to head up his environmental policy initiative. He holds a master's degree in environmental design, environmental science from the University of Calgary and has a bachelor's of science in natural resource conservation from the University of British Columbia and a technical diploma in renewable resource management from Selkirk College. He also serves as an adjunct faculty member at Northwood University teaching environmental science and as a policy advisor to the Heartland Institute on Issues of Energy and Environmental Policy. And he currently lives in Midland, Michigan with his wife and children. So I think Eric... 
I think we got the guy. <laughs> I, one, I wish my bio was that awesome. <laughs> right? No <laughs> doubt. So Jason, you and your awesome bio and who you are, buddy, we're so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So get on the website and, and look at, first of all, they don't spell Mackinac correctly. I don't really <laughs> understand that. It's a Michigan thing. <laughs> kind of like living above the knuckle. You just, you just go with it. <laughs> just go with it. Just run with it. One of the things that I love that I, when you just go to the website and you're trying to figure out the Mackinac vision and what they're trying to, to help accomplish, right? You see this concept of using free markets to solve public policy problems. And I think what Neil and Silverwolf are doing, I mean, just fits right into that. I think there's this, I think there's some perception that the government has to always save us, that we need, whether it's the federal, whether it's state or local, that they are the ones that can be our problem solvers. And one of the things I loved about Neil's story and his passion is that we found a commercial way to match customers and, you know, a business that generates a profit and a return but solves all these other problems along the way. And so just, I just want to get your kind of thoughts on that and, and this idea of does government have to be our savior and, and what can we do kind of from that free market perspective broadly and, and specifically with respect to what Silverwolf's doing, you know, with Michigan Express. Yeah, the short answer to that question, does government have to be the one that solves our problems is no. Government does not have to be the one. And you can see in the the availability of people like Neil was saying when he was speaking, there were several other people that were interested in purchasing that pipeline. He wasn't alone in that regard. There was still a lot of people who thought that there was a way to make a profit using it, whether it was, you know, transporting fuel or something like that or or some other use. So clearly there's a, a market-based use for it. There's an ability for people to make a profit. And so when Neil's idea arrived, I thought that was an interesting option that, you know, reversing the pipeline, providing a service and energy that people across the state of Michigan need, then that really is how the free market works. You can make a profit by supplying people with something they need or want. And so people in Michigan definitely need propane. There's like we were just saying in, during the break, 630,000 houses across the state use propane for heating. So, you know, 300,000 of those are are second homes or or summer cabins or that sort of thing. But still you're looking, you know, 300,000 plus homes rely on propane, residential area rely on propane for their everyday needs. So, providing that service is absolutely something that's worthwhile. So I want to, I know we joked about, and I was kind of alluding to, you know, we're having an environmentalist on and all this other stuff because there's typically a narrative around this opposition. It's, it's, if you're an environmentalist, you're completely against the oil and gas industry or vice versa. If you, or if you're for it, you can't be that. Right. And so what I thought was really, I mean, obviously you're very passionate about the environment. You've dedicated your career, your life to it. And from a professional sense, you and I talked about, you know, you're a forestry, you, you know, you love like, like we do, you love being outside in a natural preservative aspect. For those that are listening who only know that kind of narrative around, you know, this opposition from environmentalists, can you kind of justify or kind of give us, you know, where the core of that passion comes from, how you, how you kind of look at and how you perceive the industry as a whole, and kind of maybe help break down some of those stereotypes around environmentalists and, and the industry itself? Yeah, the idea that you have to be anti-free market to be an environmentalist really, to me, is a non-starter because 
I mean, some of the most passionate people when it came to, you know, protecting or conserving the environment, again, the most passionate people will be hunters and fishers. So they're people that actively use the environment, but yet they're willing to pay for or provide funds through their licenses and that sort of thing that goes directly to conserving and managing wildlife and managing the outdoors. There's also, I mean, you can see it in examples like what we're talking about today. There's companies that are interested in more than a short-term profit. So they're looking at, okay, well, what can I do to provide a service? Again, propane to people across the state of Michigan and, and the upper peninsula. They're looking at, well, rather than going through and doing a bunch of development that doesn't make economic sense, like, you know, putting in natural gas pipelines into rural areas. Well, that's not economically feasible and it would also do a lot of, it would have a lot of environmental impacts. So what's another option? Okay, well, we wrote myself and another fellow, another environmentalist who works from a free market perspective from Minnesota, wrote a paper recently on propane supply in the state of Michigan. And we we're looking at, is it possible to do something like electrification? Okay, well, if we're not going to use propane, maybe we could electrify and have electric heat and that sort of thing. Okay, well, to do that was going to raise people's prices annually across the northern part of the state by several thousand dollars. Like it's it's not realistic because a lot of these people are blue collar, you know, they're not, you know, not always wealthy. And so just asking them, well, because somebody doesn't want you to use propane, could you use electricity? Okay, well, they don't have an extra three to $500 a month to spend on this. So propane is a clean option. It's an affordable option. And it just works in terms of environmental impact and that sort of thing. So the paper that we wrote about that explained that in more detail. But certainly this is, is an option that people can rely on. And then, you know, in terms of the industry, they can look at that and say, actually, we're doing something worthwhile. We're providing a service that doesn't require a lot of environmental impacts. We've already got the infrastructure set up. And so let's just keep using that. We can improve on it, which is something like what this, the Michigan Express pipeline would do is improve on the existing options, you know, supplying as much as a million gallons a year. All of those things are important. And so you can kind of balance the environmental concerns with economic concerns and come out really at the end of it way ahead. It's win-win. I kind of want to follow up on the electrification part. I think there would be a lot of people that would push to just say, let's electrify above the knuckle, right? And I think you hit on the cost part of it. But from a generation standpoint, I mean, one, I think there's a that's a huge infrastructure investment, I'm assuming, to push significantly more electricity north. But from a generation standpoint, where would that power have come from? You know, I don't know if that's speculative or nobody has, you know, we're talking about old coal plants or things like that. I, I think people sometimes tend to forget, you know, they have the, the blind realm. Well, let's just electrify. Well, oh, yeah, well, how are we generating it? Where's it actually coming from? Yeah, and an even bigger issue for the residents of the UP, the Upper Peninsula, is they actually pay a higher electricity rates than people in the state of California. Hmm. So depending on, the, there's different suppliers, but the customers of UPCO, the Upper Peninsula Power Company, in the UP pay 22 cents a kilowatt hour for their electricity. California pays around 19 to 20. Hmm. The rest of the country on average pays around 13. So if you're asking people to electrify, 
like I said, you're asking them to spend several hundred dollars a month more to heat their homes, cook their foods, you know, do all the things that most of us just take for granted. So again, there's reasons why people do what they're doing. And a lot of it involves costs. And so propane is that cheaper, easily accessible, affordable, and yet still clean option. Right. So how much on your radar from a policy standpoint, as you and your organization evaluate these kinds of infrastructure situations relative to industries like oil and gas, is it on your radar to kind of see what everybody's doing? And then how do you kind of stay cognizant of what, you know, how did you learn about Silver Wolf to begin with? Or are you watching that? Are you monitoring it or that kind of thing? And kind of help us give an idea, like, what is it like? What's on your whiteboard or what keeps you up at night thinking, what are we going to do about this relative, specifically maybe to oil and gas in terms of the infrastructure in Michigan right now? Yeah, the reason that I found out about Silver Wolf and the Michigan Express Pipeline was because I was writing that paper. And so I was literally right at the end. We had gone through all the editing and everything like that. And then this pipeline story came up and we're like, oh, what is that going to do to the paper? And as we started digging into it, we figured out, okay, well, the pipeline when it starts in Kalkaska and will move to down to the southeast and around Marysville and that. But they're basically getting a lot of the propane from the same area that it always did come from, which is near Sarnia, Ontario. The propane is refined in Sarnia and comes back into Michigan and then is trucked or shipped around by truck or rail. And so as we were looking at it, we said our paper was focused on whether or not Line 5 was was a good idea. Should it stay open or should, as some people say, should it be closed? And then the alternative route that they're talking about right now, which is to drill the tunnel, put the pipeline underneath the bed, 100 feet underneath the bed of the Great Lakes, take the pipeline out of the water and bury it in a tunnel. And so our paper argued that the tunnel option is better option. But also our paper noted that if they shut down Line 5, suddenly all of the natural gas liquids that go to these refineries in Sarnia are going to be in greater demand. There's going to be a dearth in supply. Suddenly you're going to have a huge drop off. And so that's going to have to be replaced somewhere. And it could potentially impact projects like this, like the Michigan Express Pipeline, because where is that propane going to come from if not Sarnia? So those are the questions that we asked. That's why this option, this opportunity came onto our radar. That's what we were looking at. So just thinking about Michigan generally, and we live a Texas-centric life down here, I guess, where it doesn't get to negative 40. But what are the big headwinds in Michigan right now with respect to just ESG issues generally and the industry, the oil and gas industry, trying to make some headways there? And, you know, I think what Neil's done at Silver Wolf is amazing. But, you know, how much resistance is there to kind of that free market cooperation and, and working together to partner on solutions that are good for the state, good for the state's people, good for the state's environment, but also make some business sense? Yeah, the big issues are things like, is Line 5 going to go into the tunnel or is it going to be closed? Because our governor was elected and also the attorney general was elected, campaigned on the idea that they needed to close down that pipeline. So midstream issues are a big deal for Michigan. If you're going to close down a major pipeline like that, it's going to have an impact on, I mean, I already talked about Sarnia, but also that's natural gas liquids. You also have crude oil, light crude coming through that same pipeline. 
that light crude goes to refineries in Cleveland, Ohio, and in the Detroit area. And those refineries produce the jet fuel that is powering the jets in Detroit's airport. So those sorts of issues, you shut down midstream pipelines and that sort of thing, it, it has a huge impact on how do people heat their homes? How do they cook their food? How do they get from point A to point B? What are the costs of doing all of these things? And if you don't do it the way that already exists, okay, well, what other pipelines are going to need to be built or expanded or changed in some way to provide those same services? And then what are the impacts on places like Superior, Wisconsin, suddenly line five, which is where that line starts in Superior, what happens to them and the people that work there? All of these issues need to be addressed. And you're dealing with, like we already said, you know, several hundred thousand homes in the state use propane to heat. What happens to them? These are all these issues that are constantly on the go. And, you know, are the options that are being offered better, worse, like electrification, we already talked about, natural gas, we already talked about. Those are not realistic options. So we're still going to keep using propane. We're just going to have people pay more for it by several thousand dollars a year. It's not a, not realistic options. You know, sometimes you don't think about all the dominoes that are going to fall when you cut off one thing. And, and we talk a lot about a just transition. I typically think about that concept more internationally in developing nations, but it's a true story above the knuckle, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what is a just transition? If we're going to try to do something different, what does that look like economically to those people north of the knuckle and that stuff? So just fascinating to see, you know, you can get hyper-focused on, we want to stop line five, right? But you don't realize all the dominoes that are going to fall from that. So last thing before we wrap up, in that perspective, Jason, can you help us understand those, you talked about the attorney general, you talked about the governor of the state, the public perception is a big part of why we are do this podcast and why we want to have so many different voices out there coming on different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and then perspectives on those like yours. But so what, and not that we're trying to change the perspective perspective just for this, this simple game, but something like this, this story with Neil and Silverwolf seems to really showcase, hey, we have to do something with the existing infrastructure. What else are we going to do with it? Here's the other options. We kind of, I mean, that's coming from your side, this side seems relatively you know, plain in terms of content and information, hey, this is probably not a good idea to do this, but there's this perception, oil and gas, and anything associated with it is bad, pipeline bad, go away, go away. Not to make you the key to the savior to change all that or anything like that, but what can we do or what can be done or what would maybe be some simple things to help the industry communicate some of these issues effectively with the public, and specifically in Michigan? Yeah, the industry, to the extent that it can, I think needs to really just recognize that it's providing a valuable service for people. We need this energy to live the lives that we lead. And in many cases, this energy is a much cleaner option than we've had in the past. So we're using now natural gas to produce electricity where we used to use coal or something like that. Well, that's a cleaner option. Okay, there are still technologies that allow us to use coal cleanly, obviously, but there's fewer greenhouse gas emissions and that associated with natural gas. Because of that fuel switching, we have actually reduced our CO2 emissions by something across the country, by something of the nature of about 15% since 2005. So we're actually one of the leading, the United States is one of the leading 
industrialized nations as far as reductions of greenhouse gases. So we're doing that based primarily in market reality, not because there was some you know, overarching policy that forced it because the previous election that we went through in 2016, almost immediately after we went through that election, the country was removed effectively from the Paris Accord. But yet we're still achieving these reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So when people from the industry think about that, they can go, okay, well, we're still providing that essential energy. We're still like, I mean, all of these things, especially in times of COVID, I'm talking to you from across the country mm -hmm. because I have reliable electricity and reliable internet infrastructure. None of that happens without these fuels. Okay. So doing this is actually less impactful than me getting on a plane and flying to Houston and sitting down in the studio with you guys. But yet we're still able to discuss. All of these things come because we have access to affordable, reliable, and abundant energy. All of these things. We would not have the ability to produce, well, be at a, almost at the point where we're releasing a vaccination for COVID-19 with 90% effectiveness. We wouldn't be in anywhere near that if we didn't have the plastics and all of those sort of things that are used every day by the people at Pfizer who are building or creating that vaccination. So, I mean, there's just so many examples of what happens if you don't have access to this energy that when you stop and think about it, it really is, it should give all of us pause to think when we're talking about the leave it in the ground mindset. No, if we leave it in the ground, that would be, we would have amazingly bad impacts on human life, human well-being, the survivability. I mean, we've already talked about negative 20. I grew up in Canada where it was negative 40 a lot of the time. <laughs> and you so made it. I used to work negative 40 Celsius and Fahrenheit's the same right there. Yeah. But yeah. when I worked in Northern British Columbia, yeah, we used to go outside at minus 45 for like an eight hour day. If I didn't have the poly, like the, the oil-based insulation in my, in my coveralls, I would have froze to death. So all of those things are essential to us living a healthy, long life. So, you know, we're doing good things in terms of humans surviving and doing it even more cleanly as we use the technologies that are coming along with fracking and all those sorts of things. We live a much cleaner life than, and much more healthy, a longer life than any of our ancestors ever did. So yeah, the industry, when they're asked, they should definitely be telling that story. 100% agreed on that. Yeah. I don't like going outside when it's just 45. I don't know about <laughs> negative 45. But. All my friends in Michigan, they just laugh at us down here whenever they see us. I laugh at us, yes, but I, know, I yeah. don't like going out when it's cold. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. So, so Jason, obviously, thank you so much for coming on. We really love the perspective. Wish you nothing but the best as you continue to work in your world and, and all the things that you're doing there at the Mackinac Center. And just thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Stay warm. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it. Ask them to listen and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, 
We want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!